Oh, hi, we're back. This is episode 11 of Alpha Bunga Bunga, the place where we talk about the monsters of the Interregnum. And in a fit of literalism this week, we might actually talk about actual fucking monsters, because we're talking about Game of Thrones. Thrones, yeah. Game of Thrones, yeah. Game of Thrones, fucking Game of Thrones, fucking Game of Thrones, fucking Game of Thrones, fucking Game of Thrones, yeah. Game of Thrones, yeah. Game of Thrones, find out who we is. Uh, it's the regular potting crew of George. George, say hi. Hi. Uh, Phil. Phil, say hi. Hey. And we've got a special guest this week in the form of Richard McCulloch. Um, now, I've known Rich for a number of years, and a while back I came across this really interesting questionnaire about Game of Thrones, asking questions about why you watch a show, what it means to you, how you interpret it, and so on. And I actually had an absolute ball filling it out. And then when I was done, I was like, oh, I'm going to share this to Rich. He'll find it interesting. And, of course, it turns out that he's one part of the team of researchers uh, behind it. So, actually, it's really cool to have Rich on to discuss the study, to discuss the show, uh, and maybe discuss its politics of it. So, Rich, say hi. Hello. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. I'm going to, I'm going to introduce Rich a little bit more formally as well. Uh, he's a lecturer in film and cultural studies at the University of Huddersfield Center for Participatory Culture. Uh, and he's on the board of the Fan Studies Network. Rich's specialism is in media and audience and reception research. And so in that guise, he's working right now on two major audience projects. One is the Game of Thrones one, which we're going to discuss. And he's also doing one on Disney's Star Wars. But before we get on to evaluating who's got the correct Marxist line on the Westerosi economy and banishing all the deviationists to a gulag beyond the wall, uh, we're going to have a little chat first. So, Phil, what's been on your mind this week? I've been thinking uh, still, I'm afraid, about um, Macron. Um, and I can't get away from it because what's really stuck with me is how um, the French president is doing more to undermine, it seems to me, liberal democracy than anyone could have imagined, um, but also more than a populist. If a populist figure such as Marine Le Pen had come into the presidency, I think... Um, it wouldn't have been so damaging to liberal democracy because they would have been like an ideal that was being destroyed from the outside by populist authoritarianism. Whereas this time with Macron's kind of um, centralizing strongman agenda, um, he's undermining from within the idea of liberal democracy as a um, system in which power, executive power isn't concentrated and in which you have a functioning representative system. So the fact that, I mean, you know, that's discounting everything else, like the ridiculous kind of um, racial stereotype about African demographics, and much more seriously, the um, unrelenting war in the Sahara to which he's um, renewed France's commitment. So all of that just makes me think that... Um, even for those people who supported Macron as a defender of the liberal status quo or as a kind of anti-fascist liberalism, it's um, 
going to be self-defeating perhaps much more drastically in the long run than um, than if Marine Le Pen had actually won. Yeah, so you're not a big fan of the of radical centrism then. No, uh, maybe that came across. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you, I had. I, I, are you saying that he's kind of a psyop from uh, anti kind of liberal democratic forces that he's been kind of put into the French pre- presidency to undermine liberal democracy? What do you mean by psyop? I mean, he's it's, it's kind of like he's he's a false. <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'm not going to take the bait of trying to describe a, what a psyop is, but like he's 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 kind of a, a false flag. No, that's not even right. I'm, I'm I'm getting everything I know about this from Archer, which obviously limits my vocabulary. Um, but no, I but basically, he's like like s- you couldn't invent a more like a, a figure that could more undermine some of the premises of liberal democracy. Um, so therefore, he's been constructed by an external power. It's a Are bit like. Are you saying he's I like thought, a double agent? No, no. So like I no. So I think like it's almost like the French state, like you know, like the, if you imagine like a vat beneath like um, some French ministerial building, where they kind of manufacture um, the French elite out of like a vat of disgusting kind of goop and slime, and you manufacture the French elite to kind of run their state-led companies, big firms and to kind of direct their large bureaucracies and all of this. Um, he's like that. It's like, you know, the traditional idea is like the civil society kind of tries to capture the state and bend it to democratic purposes. Um, whereas this is like with On Marche and um, Macron's whole kind of weird, creepy political party and him himself is like, they were, it was like the state generated its own, its own kind of... Um, androids to run itself directly with no um with no kind of um you know with no kind of intercession from civil society yeah that's a bit more that's a bit more complicated than the psyop yeah (laughs) i mean i i've got this thing about radical centrism which i think is kind of curious right because the term's been used it's either stupid because it's completely wrong, or it's used kind of ironically, recognizing that it's stupid and kind of going, oh, he's a radical centrist, like he's super centrist. But actually, I mean, I, I don't know, I thought there was something maybe worthwhile in the concept, not that I necessarily defend it, but that the, like one could imagine a genuine radical centrism, one uh, a position which might be sort of pro-capitalist, pro-liberal democracy, but which were genuinely radical, which tried to break from neoliberalism, from a, a, a genuinely like liberal or republican position. I mean, I think there's kind of at least one can conceive of such a notion, no? Are you a psyop? <laughs> yeah, that's probably the that's probably the conclusion actually. But I think maybe we'll we'll uh, we'll discuss that in, like in full the idea of radical centrism and whether it's actually got any legs another time. Because um, I want to hear what George has on his mind this week. <clears throat> Yeah, so I, I've been uh, reading this collection of essays by Marshall Berman, who's this Marxist um, urbanist, called Modern, Modernism in the Streets. And it's really, I've been really, really enjoying it. Um, some of the essays have been published elsewhere so far. But the one that I've enjoyed the most so far is this story when he he's kind of in an undergrad and he goes and buys like 30 copies of the 1844 manuscripts Um and kind of distribute hasn't even properly read it and distributes it to everybody that he knows, um, and it just yeah I don't know I don't really have 
any kind of critical or interesting or analytical thoughts other than that I've really enjoyed reading it and it made me think okay I'm going to take up and reread this reread this uh this this book that I haven't read properly since I was an undergraduate so it probably means that I don't understand didn't understand any of it and kind of don't know what it's what it's talking about at all the 1844 manuscripts but <clears throat> there's one thing that, that that really stuck out which is uh the the forming of the five senses is a labor of the whole of his of the whole history of the world down to the present and this kind of made me think of of podcasting and how podcasting is really a new um element of the of, of the sense of of, of hearing of civilization yeah and that, i think no, it's that's where you're going yeah that's where you're going yeah, it, yeah. it's kind of reached because it's such an it's, it's such an an intimate and interesting medium and it just made me think <laughs> yeah you know this this podcast is really placed in the the labor of the entirety of human history and that made me feel very very proud but also very humbled so i just thought i would i would throw that out there oh, just made dear. me feel very small yeah uh, yeah so um no i don't have a i don't have a particularly serious point about that other than you know it really it, it did make me think a lot about the division between the countryside and the city and this is one of Bar- berman's continual themes how all that is solid melts into air, this phrase from the Communist Manifesto, it kind of describes the experience of modernism and particularly the experience of living in a city. And it just m- makes me reflect on living in London, um, just being this this horrible, melting, sublimating, um, maddening process. But also, I don't think I could move back to, to outside of the metropolis because I'd feel like there wasn't anything going on. So... Yeah, that's what I've been thinking about this week. How I, I both hate living in London, but also couldn't live anywhere else. So I'm, I'm actually, stuck. I, I, that, that, that made me remember that like I didn't really understand the 1844 manuscripts until I actually read Isfan Masaros's book about Marxism and alienation. But now we're just kind of showing off about things we've read and showing what metropolitan elitists we are. So, <laughs> uh, Rich, what have you been thinking about? I thought that was the point of this <laughs> section of the podcast. It was like, who's more erudite? <laughs> right. Phil's been thinking about like some French politics, but I've read this book and it's a hardcover book and it's like 400 pages. Uh, I haven't, I haven't read no, it. I bought it. So, well, well as a, as a delightful counterpoint to that, I, I've been watching telly. So, uh, you know, that works for me. Um, yeah. I mean, my main accomplishment this week, I've had a, a surprisingly busy week for many reasons, but, um, I ended up watching the, uh, the last few episodes of, um, the new Netflix series glow. Um, which is, um, I don't know if, have, have you guys seen it as well or? No, g- g- give us a little rundown of what it is. Cause I, I, I'm not familiar with it myself. So, so glow is the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. And, uh, this is a kind of a fictionalized account of a kind of true story, um, from like the 1980s, uh, when, um, a group of people set up basically a, a small wrestling company that was all women. Um, you know, and we're talking the, the pro wrestling, the kind of, you know, the, WWE for you know this the best known reference point for most people. The stuff here. that's definitely real. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the the good stuff, the stuff that you actually want to watch, right? Like I don't know any. Do, do, does anyone actually watch the Greco Greco Roman Olympic <laughs> wrestling? Is there another form? Is there another form of wrestling in the Olympics, or is it only Greco Roman? Because then I feel a bit. It's like excluding you know wrestling from other parts of the world. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know, but um, but that's the kind that, that I find quite dull. But um. But yeah, I, I mean, part of the context of this, I should point out, is that um, I share an office with another guy who's an academic, a cultural studies academic whose specialist subject is wrestling. 
and he's obviously a massive wrestling fan himself. And he, I've you know been sat next to him for the best part of the last year with him going on all the time about how much he loves wrestling and all the wrestling events that he goes to loads of events all around the UK, like pretty much every week or two. Um, and it really does seem, I, th- I think his, my experience of watching glow has partly been, you know, I really enjoyed the series. It's, it's set in the eighties. It's very, you know, nostalgic. It's hitting a kind of nostalgic sweet spot for me, I guess, you know, all the kind of visual oral signifiers, the soundtrack, it's particularly great. But, you know, the haircuts and the fashion and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's kind of, this is kind of a culmination of the last few months of starting to get back into that kind of wrestling, which I used to love when I was about seven or eight years old, but I haven't really touched since then. Um, and it's, I, I, and my friend Ben took me along to one of these, uh, a wrestling event recently. And it was, it was one of the most fun days out I've had in ages. It's, um... I guess the best way to describe it, if you've never been, is it's like it's like pantomime but for adults, where everyone gets, you know, drunk and boos and hisses and cheers and shouts obscenities at, at massive grown men in tiny spandex. It's amazing. What's not to it like? Sounds better than the football. It's it's. I, do you know? Do you know what? I actually came away from it saying that was much better value <laughs> than going to see a football match. Can, um, can you drink? Can you drink while watching it? Yeah, you drink. This is the crucial question. Exactly. Perfect. Yep. I'm sold. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I'm a huge wrestling fan. Yeah. I'm a bit worried. This is going to overtake football as a as a pastime. Um, yeah. So I, I, I guess I guess the thing that I I was really taken by, and this is really going off the subject of glow. It's just that glow got me thinking about this more generally. Um, it was it's the the bad guys the, they're called heels in 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 the fandom and stuff but like the the, the guys like the the panto villain basically um you know the so there's this guy called Pete Don who my friend absolutely loves as in loves to hate because he's such a horrible bastard and um and just I was really impressed by um the way in which they can immediately within five seconds of seeing this person, you know, I'm, I'm talking from the, from the perspective of, of a non-fan, someone who doesn't watch wrestling, and within like five seconds I know instantly that I'm supposed to hate this guy and he's the biggest bastard I've ever seen and I hate him and I want to boo him. Because they're so good at what they do. It's just like, a you know, the stances they adopt, the curling of a lip, uh, flicking their hair about, you know, the, you're kind of you know doing stuff behind the referee's back all that kind of stuff. Um yeah, I, it's I've, it, it, it it does prompt the idea like there might be a kind of you know wrestling hipsters who kind of cheer on the guy you're not meant to cheer because it's a bit different. Mm, I I don't know how often that happens. I'd, I'd have to ask my friend Ben about that, but it, it's <clears throat> there's because there is a kind of a the the panto kind of atmosphere does mean that you you kind of get told off by other fans if you're doing <laughs> it, it, it. It depends on the it depends on the version of of wrestling that you've gone to there are loads of different companies that do it and the crowd at each kind of one is slightly different um but i've have heard that there are some crowds which are a lot more open to you know or everyone does what they want kind of you know express your fandom for your enjoyment or lack of enjoyment however you want to and there are others where there is a more prescribed set of rules in place for that i, I like um, the idea of a wrestling hipster who kind of has the costume of a very little-known foreign villain who, <laughs> and kind of, you know, knows their catchphrases and knows knows what they're, they're about and actually defends them on aesthetic or theoretical grounds. I'm sure there are people like that who exist. Well, more it, much sound, it sounds like you're going to become that, George. 
uh, yeah, why not? It's it's a cool thing to do because then you can be like, oh yeah, I actually know more about this than you. And actually, you my, could then um, create you could then create a podcast about wrestling <laughs> hipsterism, which would truly be the pinnacle of civilization up to this point, surely. <laughs> but actually, that's maybe a good segue talking about heroes and villains to talk about our main subject. which is Game of Thrones' return for its seventh season. And, I mean, what's interesting is not just the show itself, but the actual phenomenon uh, that is the show. And I think we'll talk about kind of this at, at both those levels. Um, so actually, I'm just going to ask Rich a little bit about this research. So this questionnaire can be found at questros.org. Uh, we'll include the link uh, in the description of the podcast. And, I mean, I had, I had a, as I said, a great time actually responding to it and I encourage any listeners to, to respond to it because the questionnaire is still open, right, Rich? Yeah, it's going to be open until the end of this season, end of season seven. Fantastic. I really enjoyed answering because it is one of those things that really makes you think through why you enjoy watching this show. And even if you don't think it's the most fantastic show in the world, you probably still watch it anyway. Um, so I guess, can you tell us a little bit more about what, how this came about, how this questionnaire came about, what motivated it? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess there's there's a number of point ways I could respond to that. Um, but broadly speaking, um, this it's, it's a questionnaire that's been put together by a group of, group of researchers from all over the world. Um, so there's 41 of us, I think, in total. Um, 41 um, researchers from, as I say, like countries like the, the UK in particular, but there's, uh, we've got people from the USA, Canada, Finland, Germany, Spain, South Korea, France, uh, Brazil, Mexico, Greece, Russia, and Italy. Um, I think, uh, apologies to anyone I've missed off there, but I, 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 think, I think that covers it, but um, certainly a, a wide range of countries anyway. And all of us who are involved in it are, uh, to some extent, we call ourselves audience researchers or fan researchers. Um, so we're, we've all got some background in talking to media audiences um, about their fandom or lack of fandom or just their kind of encounters with popular culture texts, really. Um, and I think that it was, it was originally established by three of the researchers, the three lead researchers on it. Um, and one of them in particular, a guy called uh, Martin Barker, who's a professor at Aberystwyth University, um, He's a very well-known figure in the field of audience studies. He's he's officially retired now, but he's one of these academics who retires and then doesn't actually retire and, you know, carries on researching because he, he just loves it and he can't stop. Um, but, yeah, Martin um, has, for, for several decades now, been a very passionate advocate of studying audiences. And he's, for example, he did a lot of work on, um, you know, various kind of moral panics, um, you know, so like horror comics, um, the video nasties was a big one that he worked on in the, the 1980s. He's done work for the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification, um, on, you know, sexual violence in film and, you know, films like Straw Dogs and things like that, um, which have provoked a lot of controversy. Um, more recently, he's turned his attention to uh, really, really ambitious, large scale audience projects. Um, one in the sort of... Um, surrounding the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, and then a follow-up one um, on the Hobbit trilogy. Um, and each of those, I think I'm right in saying he had about, we're talking tens of thousands of responses. 
I think 35,000 responses the the Hobbit one got. Um, so there's a hell of a lot. And, and, you know, Alex, you'll know from having done the questionnaire, these are, you know, questionnaires that are, they do take a bit of time to do. They're, they're you know, 15, 20 minutes to complete. Um, and, you know, we, we do ask some really in-depth questions from people. And, you know, unfortunately, because we're not funded, we can't, you know, financially uh, reimburse people for their time or anything which we'd really like to do if we were able to but um but people do tend to like talking about stuff that they're interested in um and we've been really grateful that people have taken the time to do that um and and you know I guess in return one of the things we try to do and you know it sounds like this is borne out in in your experience Al of, of of doing the survey um but that people have really enjoyed doing it that that people um, enjoy taking the time to think through questions that they might not have thought through before. Even if they're really passionate about something, they might count Game of Thrones or, you know, Lord of the Rings or something like that as, you know, one of the most important uh, franchises, narratives, series of stories, whatever you want to call it, uh, in their lives um, to, to some extent. Yeah. And I, I mean, like you mentioned, the global nature of the survey that the researchers yeah. come from all over the place. And I mean, since moving to Brazil two years ago, I've been struck by how popular Game of Thrones is here and also that just the way that people respond to different families different characters different plot lines and so on kind of varies a little bit according to the sort of context here i mean the the brazilian political context is a complete mess and people kind of use that to interpret what's going on politically here and i guess Mm. you might i don't know this is a question i guess you're finding that in maybe some of the responses from around the world that they vary according to geography as well because I don't know any other sort of phenomenon, media phenomenon, particularly TV phenomenon, which is as widespread as Game of Thrones is. Hmm. Uh, Doctor Who probably is. I think. I think there are. I mean, I mean. I guess my background is more in film, so I, I would, you know, I'm, as I said, as you mentioned before, I'm doing a big project on Star Wars as well, uh, which which is a truly, you know, global cultural phenomenon. And I think one of the really interesting things we hope to get out of the project is, as you say, to, to see what distinctions there are between, you know, for example, people in Brazil responding to Game of Thrones versus people in the UK or in France or in Spain or in Australia or wherever. Um, but in order to do that, we need to get, a, you know, as many people as we possibly can. Um, not just sheer numbers, but within each kind of category. So we need, you know, a good number of people from... Brazil and a good number of people from Argentina and a good number of people from Canada and all the rest of it. What is um what is the what is the kind of differences, Alex? Then because I mean you're somebody who has um you're someone who has kind of perspective from two vantage points, um, Ireland and Brazil on Game of Thrones. So <laughs> you got to stop that, man. <laughs> so what's you got to stop the Ireland stuff? That's a great joke for listeners. They just, they, yeah, yeah they love listeners that shit. like it listeners love it so what's the yeah i mean you tell us i mean what have you noticed any differences between kind of the the different cultural context for interpreting game of thrones no i mean i, I think just with with brazil i think they pe- people feel that these power plays between these different interests um and just the sheer kind of nastiness and selfishness and and uh and and kind of the competition which drives competing elite factions as it were um feels a lot more real i guess because this is like you watch the news in brazil every night and this is what's going on um the kind of the establishment is at war with itself with different sections of it and and i think people maybe understand it that way i mean like the 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 running joke in brazil is that oh brazilian politics is like 
um, House of Cards, and then it's become, oh no, it's like The Walking Dead. In fact, we discussed this a couple of weeks ago when we discussed Brazil. Um, and, uh, and now the thing, oh, it's like actually like Game of Thrones. Um, and there are even suspicious deaths uh, in Brazilian politics, which maybe kind of make people, you know, or people, maybe Game of Thrones allows them to understand it through that. And I guess this is what I found really interesting about the, this, the questionnaire um, and the study in general is that it tries to see whether, see how people understand Game of Thrones and whether it helps people understand the world through the metaphor of Game of Thrones. Um, and I guess with that in mind, um, I kind of wanted to look through some of the questions more specifically and, and see if Rich can tell us a little bit more. I mean, I know that the sure. question hasn't closed yet, but um, talk through some of these. Um, one question which we picked out, which I found interesting, is that um, is there one debate or controversy that's particularly stood out for you and what are your views on it? I mean, is there anything that's partic found particularly interesting in the responses so far? Um, can I, can I, uh, it, this isn't a cop-out, but can I ask George and Phil and yourself what, what your answers to that question would be before I don't Not a cop-out at all, no. <laughs> But I'm, I'm because I'm because I'm hosting this. I'm going to say George has to go first. So what's so to, to clarify the question? It's what what scenes have been particularly controversial? Any scenes, uh, de debates, or controversies? Uh, I think I think is the was the was that the question you meant, Alex? Debates and controversies. Yeah, that's that's it. Is there one debate or controversy that's particularly stood out? Yeah, I don't I don't know if I'm a, a very good barometer of this because most of the debates that I've had have been about the correct Marxist interpretation of Game of Thrones and, the, <laughs> and, the, and whether the Iron uh, Bank of Bravos is, is really running the show or not. Um, so Okay, so I, I've got one, I've got one, because this genuinely is one which both aligns kind of with my political interests as well as, uh, as, well as something which just watching the show you kind of go, mm, I'm not sure about this, which is precisely Daenerys' role as sort of white saviour releasing the slaves. And you kind of cheer her on because, of course, she's one of the good ones and she's really hot and has dragons and, you know, all that. But it's also the fact that you may be a little bit disquieted by the fact that these slaves aren't breaking their own chains, but you have this kind of white saviour complex figure coming in and doing it. And for me, that was, that was my controversial one. Oh yeah, there's there's a particularly bad scene at the end of season. I can't exactly remember which which season it is, where she's held aloft by by everybody, and it's just it's a bit. It's not a great scene, in my opinion. I don't know if you I don't know if you remember this this scene. Phil, you, have you got one? Yeah, I mean, um, the well, I mean, the controversy are the um, that has generated lots of controversy among um, kind of feminist commentators are the rape scenes. And it just strikes me that it's a very strange thing to pick out of um, to pick out kind of the sexual violence in Game of Thrones, and to um, put it, you know to to take the view that it is much more kind of extreme and um, traumatizing and difficult to watch or to engage with than, say, everything else that happens in Game of Thrones, such as, um, you know, people being flayed, you see corpses, uh, people being crucified, children being burned alive, you see the corpses of children being having been burned and a child being burned, um, you know, torture, mutilation, mass murder on the battlefield, um, cannibalism, <laughs> I mean, you know, like, it goes on and on. So, um the you know the identification of sexual violence as something that's 
so much more uniquely horrible than all these other things that happen in the show. Um, or that yeah. the sexual violence is kind of more gratuitous than the other kind of things that happen in the show is, um, you know, that strikes me as really strange, to be honest, weird and strange. Um, and yeah. Anyway. No, that's a good chance. Rich. Uh, well, part of me, I, th- I think, I think Phil has hit on the the topic that has definitely come up the most in our response. Hang on, there was a right answer. Fuck. <laughs> I can't believe Phil got it right and me and Alex got it wrong. Well, <laughs> not, not the on, right answer, but on, I would George, say that, that's not a surprise, George. Come <laughs> what I would say is, um, I, I guess, uh, in in relation to any of the stuff that I'm going to say about what we've had so far, um, so I think we're we've had somewhere between. I think close to 10,000 responses so far, uh, which is obviously really good, but we're hoping that, you know, with the new season coming out, that we're going to get lots more. Um, but we've only re- quite recently pulled those 9,000, the first 9,000 as a kind of, to see what we've got. Um, and so we haven't really had a chance to, you know, properly analyze any of it, you know, do any cross tabulation match answers from one question to another question things like that um but but even just just skimming through it i've got the document in front of me now and i can skim through and the answers to that question it's pretty (laughs) almost everyone is mentioning not almost everyone but i would say a substantial majority are mentioning uh scenes with sansa um being raped by ramsey bolton um the representation of sexual violence generally um there was a scene between um, Jamie Lannister and Cersei Lannister, uh, which caused a lot of controversy because it was a kind of, even though they were in a relationship, it was there was, an, there was a, a rape scene, uh, and particularly the fact that that hadn't been, it it was consensual in the books, and I think part of that has been an issue for a lot of people. Um, I think for people who know the books well, uh, they've been quite annoyed or surprised or shocked by. The fact that the producers of the show have been quite willing to not just reproduce horrible stuff from the books, but actually make it worse than it is in the books. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think Phil raises a really interesting point, though, There's a, because the show, I mean, and, and I guess this was one thing that I didn't really get a chance to say before, but um, one of the main reasons we were interested in studying Game of Thrones on the back of, you know, all these previous audience studies that people like Martin Barker had done is precisely because it's so divisive and just so bleak and pessimistic and just filled with doom, really. Um, the fact that you can form an allegiance to a character who, and, you know, Ned Stark's death in season one is, um, I think that was the moment that for a lot of people really pissed a lot of people off, but at the same, but in a way that also really impressed them and made them want to carry on watching. Um, I don't know if I really have an answer to why it is that the sexual violence is the thing that most people are talking about it. I imagine part of it is to do with um, that that's just become one of the points of the, of debate rather than it is the most, the, because the question, bear in mind, the question is asking about debates and controversies. It's not asking about the shocking moments in the series as such. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is interesting because one assumes that an audience would understand that this is a fantasy world and that it follows its own rules. And one can criticize the gratuitous nature of the violence and the sex. And maybe, you know, I'm, 
I like the show. I enjoy watching the show, but I don't think it's that brilliant. Um, I think it's relatively middle brow, and you know, the sex and violence is a bit cheap. But whatever. I don't. I don't you know, I'm not holding up, uh, putting on some sort of pedestal of high art. So I don't expect it to. Um, to fulfill, you know, certain artistic requirements, I guess. You know, I, I see it as entertainment, so I'm okay with that. Um, and I also understand it that it's this, it's this world which is created and it follows its own rules. Um, and yet, the fact that people react against that really strongly is curious because they're bringing to the show their own expectations of and, and norms and whatnot, which I think is an odd thing because they, they as Phil said, they're tolerant of some extreme violence in some sense, but sexualized violence is not. I wonder, so listening to the conversation, I wonder if it, you know, I mean, I mean, partly it reflects kind of um, uh, the the dominance of certain feminist um, concerns and themes in public debate and commentary. Um, but I also wonder if it's not guilt, um, kind of, that it plays an audience guilt because people watch it because they enjoy the, um, you know, the sexual scenes, the nudity, which Game of Thrones has consistently kind of pushed. Um, and then they, you know, perhaps they, I don't want to say subverted because it makes it sound more um, calculated and intelligent than it probably is. But, you know, potentially maybe they play on the audience guilt because then they, um, alongside all the kind of um, the other sex, they show sexual violence. And that might kind of make the, you know, just might make the audience feel guilty. That's interesting. Sorry to interrupt, Phil, but I, th I just want to add something to this discussion. Um, a, a, a Twitter feed called Gourmet Hot Takes, which just shares lots of really shitty takes on Twitter, shared Ross Douthat's take on this, which I thought was interesting because he he said, tweets as follows. Uh, the porny side of Game of Thrones helps liberals deluded, ke sorry, keeps liberals deluded about why they like the show. He quotes ironically, oh, I like it because it's deconstructing this patriarchal pre-modern world and showing how it's sex and power all the way down, etc. Rostathek con continues, no, you like it because it lets you escape the flat dreariness of liberalism for a while because deep down you want a king or queen. <laughs> now, I think that's, I think that's, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and I don't agree with all of that, but I think there is an element to which, you know, there is a certain liberal pretense, which is like, I watch it because it's deconstructing such and such, and it's actually critique. And it's like, no, you just watch it for the for the base enjoyment of the sex and violence. And you should be honest uh, about that. He must, I mean, but he must be right. You know, so I mean, oh, you know, like feminists watch it because they have powerful female characters, blah, blah, you know, but he must be right. Um, because the other thing he also says is nobody watches it imagining themselves to be like, you know, one of the majority kind of people in that world, right, who are like, you know, peasants or servants or some kind of social inferior. Everybody watches it imagining themselves in the kind of role of one of the central powerful aristocratic protagonists. Um, you know, so it's... You mean you're not just like, pe you don't imagine yourself as peasant cannon fodder. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Imagine yourself as somebody who's central to the story. So, you know, he's right. I mean, um, that's people watch it for the... Um, for this kind of, uh, for the gratuitous sex and violence and also for the, the drama, the intrigue and the, um, the idea that, you know, this kind of uh, magical world in which everything is at stake, I guess. Can I, um, I, I mean, I, I guess I would, I would partly disagree with you there in the sense that, um, well, not disagree, but I, I, I guess I would ask how, how do you know that that's why people watch it? I've been doing this, I've been doing this, um, study, um, just on my own, like where I've interrogated myself about That's my what own I thought. views about. 
and talking to George and Alex about their lame views about like you know feminism and stuff. And so this is how I came up with this idea. You, uh, you mean an autoethnography? That's what we call it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you get PhDs for that now, so I don't feel guilty about it at all. Let's um, just drop an empirical, an empiricist bomb on on Phil there. No, I mean, sorry. I think you know, like it's. Um, I'm not sorry. I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I I propose it as something which is open to empirical refutation. You know, when yeah. when when you could conduct a survey of that scale, but I strongly suspect that you know kind of knowing how um having a good sense of how these cultural things function and also going by my own you know kind of extrapolating from my own experience and not thinking of myself as somebody who's so far from the mean um that i imagine it's similar to other people i think you can extract you can extract things culturally kind of you know which are in the ether as it were and um make inferences about them and you know subsequently subject them to empirical investigation no i think that's a very valid logic it's kind of the the guardian comment piece logic which is <laughs> assuming that everybody does things for the reasons that i do them i'm going to make these claims about those things <laughs> so that, that's where that's, that's where right. we come in with our with our questionnaires that's that's exactly the reason um i mean uh, one 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 project that i'm putting, uh, recently i've been thinking of working on um we're trying to get it off the ground at the moment is on um I don't know if any of you guys watched the Netflix series Thirteen Reasons Why. Basically, it's a t- it's a teen drama um, about um, a, a, a girl who she takes her own life and she leaves behind a set of audio tapes, like cassette tapes. Um, basically, one for for thir- like so thirteen reasons why thirteen reasons why she did it. Um, so she's kind of so the whole series is you know you know that she's that she's taken her own life and then by the end of the series you kind of understand the chain of events that has led her to do that um but it's it's created it's been really really controversial there's been massive furore all this stuff in america particularly uh people trying to ban students from watching it uh banning the book that it was adapted from from libraries um sending letters home uh you know like parent teacher association kind of uh, you know those kind of and psychologists basically saying that this is going to cause people to kill themselves basically and so I I guess when I that kind of commentary where it's kind of um reading like like imposing your reading of a a particular film or tv show or or whatever um and assuming that that's how everyone else reads it I I think that that's that's one of the things that I try to get beyond in in my work I'd say even though I totally do it myself when when I watch when I watch particular films and TV shows. I'm I, you know I, I I often think that oh surely everyone watches it for these reasons, which is why I like it. Um, but the, when we do the research, what we find is that actually there's there is always whatever the text, even if it's a really bland one that you think can only have one possible really mundane interpretation. There'll be loads of people who have all these different takes on it. Um, and but that's to me is is really interesting as well, and and, and often you kind of alluded to to it before, but it's, it's often says more about the people who are talking than it does about the the TV show itself or the film itself. Right, and and, and in this survey, you've got a pretty a question which tackles this pretty head on. Um, question fourteen in the survey, um, which I wanted to ask you what the findings have been on it so far. Uh, the question is as follows: Which of the following comes closest to your view? 
of the role that fantasy stories can play in contemporary society. And so there's a, a list of options as a way of enriching the imagination, a way of exploring it, uh, and experiencing emotions, as a way of thinking from a distance about the problems of our world, a means of escape, uh, a kind of grand storytelling, and so on. Um, what have you found from that so far? Yeah. Um, so that question, I guess, um, this is this is one of the quantitative questions where, where you, people are choosing from a range of options. And I think on that one, we were asking people to choose up to three. So they could easily have felt that all of those options applied to them, but we were asking them to kind of really kind of knuckle down to the, the ones that make the most sense to them. Um, and I've actually got the, the figures in front of me here, so I can tell you what we have. Um, so the highest proportion at the moment uh, is that they are a way of enriching the imagination, uh, closely followed by a means of escape and a way of thinking from a distance about the problems of our world. Um, I think it's quite interesting that, that those, some of those almost seem to stand in contradiction with each other. And we have quite a large number of, yeah. of people. So, so you think of a means of escape and a way of thinking from a distance about the problems of our world. As I, I, I don't, as I they're say, pretty we, opposed, right? They, they're surely pretty opposed. But um, it will be really interesting to delve down and 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 to to see, you know. So the people who chose means of escape, how have they answered the other questions? Um, and this is what we do when we're, we're designing the questionnaires. We think about ways that we can design one question which we can then use to divide the participants up and then see how they're responding to other things. And I, I, I think... I was going to... Go on. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, like, I thought it just proves what I was just saying from my autoethnography just now, um, that response. So, yeah, <laughs> anyway. Sorry, that's just such a classic Phil comment. Yeah, I think what you just said just proves me right. Uh, no, no kind of elaboration why. Just like, I just assert that that is... That is in support of what I just said. No, but right, I, mean, I think the, the way one would treat fantasy, I mean, I guess the tacit assumption would be people watch it as a means of escape, right? Because it's a completely different world and, and well, um, yeah. it's just, it's a bit of an entertainment, right? Um, and yet, and yet, of course, there's, there's the fact that, you know, trying to understand, uh, thinking about the problems of our world through it is a much more interesting proposition, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. Um, which I guess... Also, to leads on to a question which isn't something which the the questionnaire tackles directly, um, but why what that might say? I mean, what the popularity of the show might actually say? Why uh, why has this captured the imagination so much um, over and above? I think some other let's say like prestige TV shows, uh, and we can you know we can talk about uh, Mad Men or The Wire or whatever else, and somehow like Game of Thrones seems to stand head and shoulders above this. I mean, I don't know if you have figures on kind of um, on viewing figures of this, but it just seems to be such a phenomenon um, worldwide that uh, there has to be a reason why this has captured the imagination now. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and I, I'm speaking now from my own views on this rather than from the data that we have. Um, but I, I do think this comes back to what you were saying before, Alex, about um, that you mentioned in Brazil, a lot of people are using Game of Thrones as a way of, uh, kind of understanding the current Brazilian political situation. Is that, is that what you said, yeah? Yeah, more or less, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, and, and I think that that's not unique to Brazil. And, and one of the things that I really find fascinating about Game of Thrones, and one of the reasons I love talking about, about it with people, um, you know, teaching it in class and talking to students about it and things like that, um, 
is precisely that it, that that seems to be the way into it. It's 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 people who have a quite a, a bleak view of contemporary politics in whatever national international context they're talking about. Um, they're the ones who really seem to be using Game of Thrones um, more to kind of understand the problems of our world. I think, and, and again, this is based on really, really preliminary kind of looking at some of the data that we have, but it does look like um, the, so we, we had one question, which is about um, rating your kind of political views. Like, you know, it's a little bit crude, but you know, broadly are you yeah. left wing, broadly are you right wing, broadly are you in the center. Um, and I think it's definitely the people who consider themselves to be more on the left who are much more interested in seeing it as a political commentary and the people whereas the people on the right just see it as kind of it's just a tv series it's just a means of escape that's fascinating i mean we could we could go like a bit adam curtis here and uh and understand it as you know the world being infinitely complex and that we've lost the ideological mechanisms and means of of explaining a complex world to ourselves uh and that therefore the world seems the political world seems populated by uh these self-interested powerful violent people uh whose interests are not those whose interests are not those of ours or or is is it the case that anybody who puts themselves more to on on the left is i guess more likely to read any cultural product in terms yep. of the problems of today's society so i don't know if you have any comparative data or, is it is it particularly or, a game of thrones thing or, or somebody or somebody on the left is going to particularly enjoy all the sex and violence that they um, feel guilty about enjoying <laughs> but we know what your thesis is on this <laughs> very clear to be honest i just i just want to hear i just want to hear more from phil <laughs> that's what we're trying to discourage that on this that's podcast. that's the first time anybody's ever said this, and said that on this podcast. no but sorry so what, what, was, the, what was the question i think that's genuinely fascinating though um that that that, that, that at least it seems that kind of left-wing people are more likely to interpret uh the show in more, in a more political sense um, it seems it seems that way was, my question is actually of course, the serious politics of it the politics of it i mean it, to the extent that one can be um, relatively blunt about this is a, a politics of of naked power, right? It's not a competition of ideas. Oh, sure, that's no. true, Alex. Because you get like, um, you know, you get kind of um, some of the. It is purely kind of self-serving on part of some of the families. Now, now, do you see what you've done? Now, you've made me sound like a real, real Game of Thrones geek, and I do not appreciate it. No, we've got to do this. We've got to do this. We've got to delve into this. We're going to have to get do it what, like, at some time, so let's okay, do it. Okay, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so um, you've got, like, you know, the various families who are competing merely for their own kind of dynastic self-interest, um, the Lannisters being the most obvious, and then you've got others who kind of, you know, gesture towards something which is um, represents something which is slightly more wider. Um, so... Uh, the Starks kind of represent, um, stand for the North and its interests that are distinct from those of the South. And then you have like the, ne- the nearest Targaryen who has some claim to want to um, break through all the kind of petty squabbling of these aristocratic families, impose a new kind of more comprehensive and legitimate political order that's in the interests of the people for whom, it, whom it's meant to look after. Um 
so you know, I mean, these are. I mean, this is implicit, obviously. Um, but I mean, it's. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is more than just kind of um, petty squabbling. And then don't forget, you know, there's the religious kind of themes as well. There's the weird kind of Christian fanatics of um, who worship fire. Um, yeah, and then there's, there's 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 the what are they called the the free men? I can't remember who lives somewhere in the, the brotherhood the of the brotherhood of the exactly the brotherhood without banners. Who exactly, are like who, in, are like, who are like 16th century Anabaptists. Yeah, um, like gonna... <laughs> a kind of insurgency, kind of a low-level peasant insurgency seeking to liberate the countryside from the rule of these uh, rapacious um, feudal feudal landlords and um, nobles and what have you. So, you know, there's it's implicit in the background, some of this stuff. Um, and I guess it's becoming less and less important as the fantasy elements come to the fore with the um uh with uh, the dragons and the white walkers and all that stuff i'd be i'd be really interested to hear sorry to I, i'm on the guest i'm probably not supposed to ask no go for it, go for it. Do, it jump in. Do, do you do you guys think that the show has a kind of ideological standpoint or or is it just kind of a free for all post ideological nothing I think there's going to be a lot of radio silence here while we all ponder this question. I I have I have some thoughts and feelings about the matter. Um, <laughs> Tell us about your feelings. Yeah. Okay. So I feel um, that I guess sort of one of the things that it's often um, I guess compared to is Lord of the Rings, rightly or wrongly, you know, kind of yeah. a, a fantasy, an, another kind of classic fantasy um, <clears throat> touch point. And that it it definitely has more of a system of like here are the political decisions, here are the consequences of those decisions in which uh, which Lord of the Rings doesn't have. Lord of the Rings has an, an incredible kind of rich imaginative universe, but there's no politics. It's right versus wrong, and so I think there is a kind of I guess its starting point is that oh look, it, it's more complex than that because sometimes people are both good and bad. So look at Tyrion Lannister. He's kind of bad sometimes yeah. and good sometimes. So I guess what it's sort of starting from is there is there is a, a system of decisions made in in constraints. That's politics, which, which have consequences. So, I mean, but whether it has an ideological um, position or not, it's kind of complicated by the fact of dragons and magic, which make it difficult for me to <laughs> translate it onto kind of contemporary politics. But maybe that's just my lack of imagination. No, but I think there are there are competing justice claims which come from very different standpoints, which I guess is a, kind of the substance of the politics of the show. Um, I mean, I mean, in a way, I'm kind of just repeating what what you've said, George, in the sense that it there doesn't seem to be a, a kind of ideological thrust to 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 the universe as, as a whole that's depicted there. Um, yeah, I mean, is it? Isn't I mean, it... Rich, did you have a, did you have an, an opinion on this, and that you were leading somewhere with this, or, or uh... <laughs> not? Not really. I, I, I'm. I, I, I. Again, I don't want it to sound like a cop out, but as an audience researcher, I'm kind of loath to tell people what I think a text means. I kind of prefer to look at how other people make those interpretations. Um... Our, our listeners don't want that. Our listeners want to be told <laughs> what to think. <laughs> they don't. They don't want nuance and subtlety. Do you just mean you want to be told? You tell us, Mister Scientist. <laughs> well I, I i don't i don't have an answer for you in, in, in the sense that i mean i i guess i could i could point to some of the data again and say that um i guess one of the things that seems to have really fascinated a lot of people about the show 
is that it... I mean, and I guess this is a testament to the fact that when I asked you the question, there was a bit of radio silence while you pondered it. It's it's difficult to say, right? There's there's not. It doesn't cl- seem to fit clearly into uh, any kind of existing system of of morals and things that w- that we might expect to find in other contemporary film and television. I think um, that's a good a good point. I mean, don't don't mistake our radio silence for us pondering. It's just our lack of professionalism. Um, <laughs> but I think I think there's a there is kind of an important point that it's not overly moralistic, and that in fact, you know, maybe that's why it was so successful that first season. That so spoiler alert here, listeners, that you know you you expect um, um, you expect the Starks. They're going to be the heroes. They're all going to be fine. And then literally the main character gets very severely punished at the end of the first season in a way that I love, don't I love expect the first season a... spoiler alert because there's loads of people listening to this going, I might listen to this podcast <laughs> to find out what Game of Thrones is <laughs> about and find out whether I should watch it or not. You don't know what our listeners do or don't do. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't assume. I shouldn't assume. Sorry, li- listeners. You need, to, you need to do a questionnaire um, for them. No, but I think, I think there's a, you know, there is a kind of important point here that it's not moralistic or it's not, um, you know, it, it kind of... <laughs> And it's, they're, they're quite basic kind of TV rules. And or, or this, this, this is what I would think, Rich, you probably know more than I do about this. But it's like, OK, you actually have this idea that the good guys, some of them might actually die. And that suddenly means that these the kind of the moralizing yeah. isn't very strong. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the Starks are by some distance the closest thing the the series has to. Well, actually, no. They're, they're, they're probably the closest thing the series has to a house where you could say that that house is a kind of the house that you root for but then there are other other characters in it which also like i mean daenerys and Tyrion particularly you know they get a lot of the the, the most quote-unquote heroic scenes and the best lines and the, some of the most dramatic moments in the series revolve around them um, I, I think I think that the, the thing about Daenerys is interesting because she's the one who carries the greatest sense of historical inevitability about her. Like she, she's carried on the winds of history and has victory after yeah. victory after victory, albeit far away in Essos. But you can feel that it's coming. And if there's, I think, an, an ideological kind of center to, to the to the universe depicted there, it's it's that. I mean, it's it's the it's the breaking of chains that she represents and this kind of new. Um, perhaps like absolutist monarch, which can which can rule a, a, a society freed from slavery. Um, I mean, that's I think the closest as it gets. That's that's my two cents on it. Yeah, although I would say that the uh, one of the things I really liked about the Daenerys storyline is is that she does she does also run into some significant difficulties as well. And you know, the whole like Sons of the Harpies kind of storyline does really. <laughs> in the context of all the other kind of surprising deaths and things, I think that was a time when I started to think, Oh God, Daenerys is screwed as well. Is she going to get killed off? Like all this kind of thing. Um, I, I forget where, where we've left it now. I haven't, I haven't rewatched since the last season aired. Where, where, where is is she? Where, where is she at the moment? (laughs) Daenerys? Yeah. Yeah. Where's Daenerys? I don't know. I've, I've, I've got the same issue that, um, She's with the. Um, she's bit. on the fleet, or going on to invade uh, Westeros. Oh, she's doing fine then. Yeah, she's doing fine. <laughs> Thanks she, for the check-in. She, she's sound. <laughs> Fair play to her. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, I think we've discussed a bit the politics of the show. I mean, the one 
final question um, is the the show's mantra is winter is coming, and you've asked, you asked a question in the questionnaire explicitly about this. What does uh, winter is coming mean to you? What does it make you think of? What is winter for you? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about some responses to that so far? Yeah, I mean, I again, I, I haven't really had a chance to go through these answers uh, in too much depth, um, but I think the interesting things from this answer will come out when when we do the cross-tabulation with some of the political uh, political answers, and also the, the class uh, questions as well. I, um, I don't know if you remember, Alex, but... That we, yeah, that's we, fascinating. Tell us about this, yeah. So, so, so most, most surveys, questionnaires that you fill out will try and quantify your social socioeconomic class in some way. So typically this is done through asking you about household income, uh, levels of education, things like that. Um, we've always kind of, I say we... Um, among the group, but particularly Martin Barker, who's the, who's the head of the project, um, we've had some kind of methodological issues with this because class is a really difficult thing to quantify. Um, you know, anyone who's ever read Pierre Bourdieu or, uh, you know, the people who've been influenced by him, it's, it's uh, you know, people like Bev Skeggs who, who do things on, like, you know, um, the feminist politics of, of social class and things like that. It's It's really difficult to reduce someone's social class down to how much money they have in the bank account, uh, whether they visit art galleries, you know, <laughs> what kind of level yeah. of education they have, those kinds of things. So what we decided to do instead, and it's a total experiment, it may fall on its ass miserably, it may not work for us, but what we tried to do is we, we said, um, I forget the exact wording, but it was along the lines of, imagine you're transported to the world of Game of Thrones but you're no stronger or weaker, no richer or poorer than you are in our world. Where would you put yourself on this spectrum from small folk through to pretender to the throne? Yeah, and this is a seven-point scale. A seven-point scale, yeah. Um, so I think the really interesting answers for the winter is coming question will come when we can match what people said for their class, their class proxy um, and or with their politics with the winter is coming. And I, and, I, and I expect it would be something along the lines of what I was saying before about the, the people who possibly consider themselves more left-wing are more willing to think of winter in slightly more abstract metaphorical sense, um, you know, impending doom and all that kind of thing, rather than, you know, we have had some really specific answers where it's just people are talking about snow and <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Um, so those are definitely the right wing people. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm definitely loath to to say to say that definitively at this stage, but that's that's what it seems like. It <clears throat> that's that's one of our, I guess that's a hypothesis for now. So has, has anybody said winter is communism? Because the idea from, <laughs> for me at least is winter is coming. It's inevitable. Communism is coming. It's inevitable. Has anybody put that, that um, forward? I've literally just done the uh, really uh, scientific method of control F. Uh, on the database, um, and I have got someone who has mentioned communism. Uh, I'll read it out to you. Yeah, now. That's George. That's George's answer. Uh, I don't know if you want to read that out. That if that is my answer, that would be super it's from, embarrassing. It's from it's from the United if States. I'm the only per- okay, cool. It's, it's from so the it's United not. States, so it's it's probably not you. Um, so they said, "Winter is the thing that makes people band together. 
It's the thing that disrupts old power relations built on the desires of old white guys. It's the thing that will make the people of, we of Westeros forge new coalitions and hopefully work together toward a more free and just future. But it might also decimate the human population. The Ice Kings and their hive mind non-zombie zombies make me think of the renewed fears of Russia and communism, particularly because the White Walkers are a consequence of humanity's former desire to take over everything, including the lands and peoples of the children. The White Walkers are the return of the repressed. The consequences of humanity's actions come back upon them to wreak havoc. Interesting. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> That's dreadful. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That is super counter-revolutionary. That's not... <laughs> That's not cool. So in other words, what you're saying is that's the wrong answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This is why I wasn't a good academic, I guess. I mean, it, um, but, yeah. Now, shouldn't I mean, summer be communism, but like, after the winter, George? I mean, like... Other people have said the opposite, though. Uh, so I've got another one here. Winter probably refers to social upheaval. While I doubt Martin will go, to, go this way, for whatever reason, it makes me think of communism. So... I mean, Ooh, I, I mean, I mean, I guess one of the things that I would say about about this and about some of the conversations we had earlier in the podcast about the relationship between um, Game of Thrones and politics and people's view of the world versus view of a fantasy world and things like that. Um, when I was teaching, a, I, I ended up teaching Game of Thrones in one of my classes. Um, it was a, it was a, a class on quality TV, um, but I wanted to talk about the way in which kind of complex quality in inverted commas forms of TV um, are increasingly being talked about in more kind of highbrow kind of circles and things like that. And I ended up doing a little bit of, you know, very preliminary, very quite cursory research into uh, Game of Thrones memes and tweets and, you know, looking for situations where people had used Game of Thrones to kind of understand recent political events. Um, and... One of the things I found, which probably the three of you have seen, is a video called uh, Winter is Trumping, I think it's called. And it's, a, it's basically Donald, Donald Trump um, superimposed, like clips of Donald Pump, Trump uh, superimposed on top of clips from Game of Thrones. Have, have you guys seen this? No, I haven't seen it. Okay, well, no. check, check it, it out. It's, it's, it's really well. It's like the, um, you know, a lot of the joe.co.uk football kind of videos where they, you know, cut out the, cut out the face and stick it on a video of a clip of game of thrones kind of thing yeah there was one of those which when i watched it i thought this is a great piece of editing uh very very funny but also i thought clearly very critical of trump uh clearly made by i th i thought clearly some made by someone who didn't like him and thought he was a bit of a bit of a prick um but what really surprised me and i'm not saying youtube comments are a reliable source to go for this kind of data but like but the but the comments were but but they were pretty much uh, pro Trump, from what I saw. Uh, basically, reading the video as this is really funny. He's really funny. This makes me like him even more. Uh, he's just so quotable. I I like the guy even more after watching this. Th those kinds of things. Um, it's interesting. Sorry. No, go on. Well, I was going to say. I mean, while you were talking, it made me think about Warhammer, because you know the um, the Warhammer forty thousand. Geek fest kind of role playing, fantasy uh, space fantasy universe. So I mean, it's yeah. very closely associated with the alt right. And um, at the time that Trump won the election, some of the some of the memes that came through from the alt right, alongside the Pepe the Frog and the other ones that are kind of very notorious, um, also came through with Warhammer uh, Forty Thousand 
memes. And the, you know, part of the um, appeal I, I gather for the alt-right of the Warhammer world is precisely its, um, its bleakness. Um, I mean, there are other things as well, but it makes me wonder, like, why Game of Thrones seems to have a more um, universal appeal, perhaps, um, and that people can kind of project their, you know, multiple, they can draw multiple things from it rather than um, picking it up and using it kind of exclusively to fit one particular frame. Hmm, interesting. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I would probably say that that is the case for quite a few different films and TV shows, but yeah, possibly more for Game of Thrones, precisely because of what we were talking about before, because it doesn't seem to have a specific worldview that it's trying to push or promote. Um, maybe, as you say, maybe that makes it more of a, I guess blank slate makes it sound like it's bland or mundane, but I, I don't mean it in that sense. I just mean in the sense of it's, it's easier to... So what Dennis McShane said is just tits and dragons at the end of the day, right? <laughs> and on that bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think actually indeed on that bombshell, because I think we're going to have to start wrapping this up, but it's been fascinating actually hearing about this. And again, I need to encourage all listeners to fill out uh, this survey. It's at questros.org. It really is a lot of fun. Um, and I hope you've got that sense of it from uh, from our discussion now. Um, as a way of wrapping this up, I want to ask everyone, um, what do you want to see in the final season? You can do whatever you want, but what do you desire to see in the final season? Uh, I'll start with George. Um, I just want to see some good old-fashioned like family entertainment. That's what I watch Game of Thrones for. That's what I'm hoping. It, it, I thought this was broken down into two into kind of two mini seasons. Um, I, I, I guess, yeah, I'm hoping it, it's going to have a bit of a resolution um, and not kind of go on endlessly because I think it's, I think the first five seasons particularly were really, really good. So, yeah, I'm hoping it's going to tie everything up and we're going to hear what happened to Gendry as well. <laughs> Phil, have you got, have you got any... Um deep desires that you want to see realized in the game of thrones world actually don't answer that question i was going to say i wish you i wish you hadn't phrased it like that um originally well i mean it was it's not quite a deep desire the deep desires go very deep um but the originally i wanted you know i wanted to see daenerys win um now i feel that's kind of boring and hackneyed and unimaginative and I kind of want to see the White Walkers win. I mean, because I know it's not going to happen. And in Lord of the Rings, which, I mean, is kind of vastly inferior to Game of Thrones, but in Lord of the Rings, you know, obviously you've got a route for the Black Riders and Sauron. Um, and I feel like you've got a route for the White Walkers now. I don't know why, but, like, I'm kind of bored of Daenerys and, yeah. I want well, to see the at the very least, win. the Lannisters. Mm, right. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe, yeah, because they're kind of the underdogs now. You know, it's just um, their incestuous little union of brother and sister. They lost all their kids. They've lost... Um, they're a, they're a close family. Support. You have to respect that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're kind of the underdogs now. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I want, it, I want it to end, basically, like George said. I just want it to end, and I want closure. That's what I want. I want closure. Rich. You got, have you got any desires you want to see played out? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, I, I, more, more than desires see, what I want to see played out, I, I think I have concerns. Um, and I think the concerns are 
partly to do with the characters that I find the most interesting. And they tend to be the morally ambiguous um, talkers rather than the fighters. Uh, like, like Littlefinger and Varys and people like that I find really fascinating. I, I love anyone who can manipulate the system without, you know, brute force. Um, as much as I, you know, I love seeing, uh, you know, obviously Jon Snow is a great kind of hero character and I don't want to see anything bad happen to him or anything like that. But the way the series is going and as much as the, you know, the end of the last season, Battle of the Bastards episode was just so good. <laughs> I was so into it. But at the same time, the more it moves towards that kind of threat of total chaos and carnage and all out warfare, the more I'm slightly concerned that there's going to be less of the I guess the politics stuff that we've been talking about which I find I find really fascinating I love it when someone you know pulls the wool over someone's eyes and they don't realize that they don't expect it and things like that so I I, I guess I guess that can still be done in warfare though I I, yeah Uh, anything anything surprising really I just that's 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 the thing that the show gives me the most is is just surprised I I don't know what I want to happen I don't know what is going to happen and yet still the show constantly gives me moments that I think god I didn't see that coming and as long as I have more of that I guess I'm okay what about that's you great. and it's a, and it's, what a, it's you, a lot, yeah well it, I mean it's a lot more that was a lot more sophisticated an answer than, than I was going to say because I've just been team Arya for a long time and I just want to see Arya yeah exactly oh, bloody come revenge on. seriously on everyone <laughs> oh you're such a ah such a that's such a i don't know noob i don't know don't know <laughs> what the real what the right word is but that's what you're supposed okay. to think reject wrong that answer. opinion i know i've gone for the wrong yeah, answer again that's, that's wrong answerism gone mad but sometimes the anyway, obvious answers uh, are obvious because because they're right deep truths deep truths richard is spitting and has been doing the whole <laughs> podcast um thanks very very much richard that was actually really fascinating Thanks, guys. Um, I, one of the kind of ongoing thematics of the show has been kind of the uh, the return of, I mean, the show meaning this podcast, the return of politics, the return of history, and how this has sort of discombobulated people and people are grasping uh, for means to understand the way the world's uh, changing without maybe the tools to do so. Um, and maybe this is kind of winter is coming. And uh, I think just we need to add something to that mantra winter is coming communism will win and see you next week so bye bye so much for freedom of speech